0: Hey there! Welcome back to the MultiPod. It's the summer of 2020, and thanks for hanging with us. We hope you're having a great summer. We certainly are here too. Your team at the MultiPod. We've been busy uh, getting outside and doing lots of different things, taking a break from our screens and our microphones and our keyboards. So uh, with that in mind, we've uh, come up with a bit of what we call our summer special for you, something a little different. Now, this is going to set the tone for some of the changes and new ideas and things we want to develop here on this show. As you know, it's been two and a half years since we started the multipod. And uh, we're ready for a little bit of an adjustment and try to test out some new things, do things a little different. So with that in mind, what we've done is come up with a couple biographies of some famous multi-potentialites. We're going to share their story with you and kind of integrate that a little bit with our regular programming, I guess you could say, of some Putty Peep profiles and things going on with uh, the Putty Tribe. So that sets the stage for this episode. We hope you're everyone staying healthy and uh, and active as best you can. And uh, we hope that you enjoy this uh, different style of episode for you. So with that, cue the music. This is episode 61 of the Multipod, and thank you for joining us here today. If you listen to episode 60, it was a bit of a milestone episode, obviously the number in itself, but also in who we talked to. We talked to Flo, who is a relatively new member of the Party Tribe. He, he hails from Austria. And uh, along with having a great backstory and, of course, a very prototypical multi-potentialite, Flo also gave us some new ideas and some inspiration uh, for what we can do with this uh, podcast. So we've decided to build on that and start to integrate some new features. In this episode, you're going to hear a couple biographies of noted, uh, well, basically famous people who, it turns out, and you probably won't be too surprised, are multi-potentialites. We're going to start with Nikolai Tesla and then learn about Howard Hughes. So this is a team effort, of course, as we always try to do here at the Multipod. Uh, Flo did uh, the research and kind of put the notes together and gave us some direction. Sarah recorded the uh, part about Nikolai Tesla, and then you'll hear from Vanessa talking about Howard Hughes, and then you'll hear me pop in there at the end as we kind of (laughs) bring it back to the present day and talk about some of our recent uh, Putty Peep profiles. So Tesla, well, of course, he's known today, or at least his name, as the name of the electric car company. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised, probably most of you have heard about him at least a little bit beforehand. He is certainly one of the pioneers of electricity and electrical development, especially in kind of common-day use, like general appliances and practical applications. Now, before I knew about the adventures of uh, Elon Musk and his Tesla company, when I thought of Tesla, I remember you probably know this picture of um, this guy sitting in this massive room, like four stories high. He's sitting in a chair with his legs crossed, reading a book. And in the middle of this room, there's this massive conductor and bolts of electricity streaking across the ceiling, hitting this thing. You can imagine how loud it is. And he's just sitting there, you know, kind of quietly reading his book. And that's Tesla. It's one of those famous pictures out of uh, history, basically. Uh, so, I mean, that's that's the first notion that comes to mind. And I remember years ago I was working at a hostel one summer and a guy I worked with who was doing the night shift. And night shift people tend to be a little eccentric. as <laughs> part of the definition, I think, of the job. And one morning I came into work and he started telling me all the stuff he learned about Tesla Overnight, and like how this guy, you know, invented all these amazing things, and like was such a pioneer of electricity, and and a lot of the world influenced so much of the world that we know it today, and yet people didn't understand who he was, and he was largely forgotten and all the rest. So, I think we can thank, I suppose, Elon Musk for at least bringing the name back into kind of popular awareness. Uh, So that's good. But he certainly deserves the recognition that he's starting to gain more and more. And you'll learn some more about it right now from Sarah. So I'm going to pass it on to her. She'll tell you the story of Nikolai Tesla.
1: Hello, podcast listeners. I am Sarah, sometimes co-host of this podcast, and I am thrilled to welcome you to all this new episode I hope you enjoyed the changes you were working on and also our little historical review on a few polymaths or multi-potentialized for today's episode. I will be talking about Nikola Tesla. He always got my attention a lot and he's definitely a very interesting figure for me. I believe he wasn't or still isn't very well known, but I do feel that this change when <laughs> Elon Musk named his car company Tesla under his name. I don't think Nikola Tesla has never received the acknowledgement he deserves, but if after this little review you feel you want to learn more about him, there are a few very good documentaries that you can watch. One is called American Experience, Tesla, and another one is Tesla, Master of Lighting. If you don't know him, it's because of Tesla that we have electric current today. He was an engineer, a scientist, an inventor, a visionary, and for me, an artist as well. For his way of thinking, basically. Tesla is known for designing the alternating current AC, electric system, which is the predominant electric system used across the world today. Plus, he created the Tesla coil, which is still using radio technology. But let's start from the beginning and talk a little bit about his bio. Tesla was born in Smilhan, Croatia, In 1956, his father was a priest in Serbian Orthodox Church, and his mother managed the family's farm. He had a brother, Daniel, that was killed in a riding accident. Tesla was seven years old when Daniel died. His loss was a tremendous shock for him, and apparently, since then, he started reporting seeing visions. It's been said that these were the first signs of his lifelong mental illness. But I hope you can judge that for yourself when you get to know him better. Tesla studied in Austria math and physics at the Technical University of Graz and philosophy at the University of Praga. One day, while walking at the age of 26, he started drawing in the sand of the path. You know why? Because the idea of a brushless AC Motor came up to him, right at that moment. He came up with it at that moment. And he needed to express it and design it, to put it down somewhere. You know, this shows how ideas just come to you in the most unexpected times. And you need to listen and pay attention to them, because if not, they can go, and then you forget about them. I am sure that has happened to all of, all of you. I mean, it had happened to me for sure. So right now, when something comes into my mind and I have an idea, I need to draw it or just write it somewhere, even just sit in my phone. Later that year, Tesla moved to Paris and started working at the Edison Company. But two years after, he immigrated to the United States. He was hired shortly after, as an engineer at Thomas Edison headquarters in Manhattan. He worked there for a year, impressing Edison with his diligence and ingenuity. At what point Edison told Tesla he would pay him 50 grand for an improved design for his DC dynamos. After months of experimentation, Tesla presented a solution and asked for the money. Edison demurred, saying, Tesla, you don't understand how American human works. Tesla quipped soon after that. Who would stay if they promise you something and they just playing with you? After an unsuccessful attempt to start his own Tesla electric light company and a sting-digging ditches for $2 a day, Tesla found bikers to support his research in, into an alternating current. He was granted more than 30 patents for his inventions, and he was invited to address the American Institute of Electrical Engineers on his work. His lecture caught the attention of George Westinghouse, the inventor who had launched the first AC-powered system near Boston, and was Edison's major competitor in the battle Battle of the currents. Westinghouse hired Tesla, licensed the patents for his motor, and gave him his own lab. Edison arranged for a convicted New York murderer to be put to death in an AC power electric chair, a stunt designed to show how dangerous the Westinghouse standard could be. Bailed by the Westinghouse royalties, Tesla struck out on his own again, but Westinghouse was soon forced by his backers to renegotiate their contract with Tesla, relinquishing his royalty rights. Tesla invented electric oscillators, meters, improved lights, and a high-voltage transformer known as the Tesla coil. He also experimented with X-rays, gave short-range demonstration of radio communications 2 years before Marconi, but he also piloted a radio-controlled boat around a pool in Madison Square Garden. Together, Tesla and Westinghouse lead the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago and partnered with a General Electric to install AC generators at Niagara Falls. This was the first modern power station. Tesla tried during his whole life to find a way to get infinite energy from the air. He believed in this. He believed that we were all connected through an infinite and invisible source of power. But after dealing with so many failures and rejections too at the end of his life, he ended isolated and alone. For me, a very tragic ending, but such... For such as a visionary and inventor. But um, let's not end with this sad argument, Um let me tell you a few cool anecdotes about him. He was definitely a, a figure. Did you know that he was born during a lightning storm? He indeed was born around midnight between July 9th and 10th during a fierce lightning storm. According to the family legend, Midway through the birth, the midwife wrung her hands and declared the lighting a bad omen. The child will be a child of darkness, she said. To which his mother replied, No, he will be a child of light. How beautiful this quote. I believe he actually was a child both of darkness, of what is hidden, and the light. He was also known for having a terrific sense of humor. For example, after dining with writer and poet Rudyard Kipling, he wrote this in a correspondence to a close friend. April 1st, 1901. My dear Mr. Johnson, what is the matter with ink spiller Kipling? He actually dared to invite me to dine in an obscure hotel where I will be sure to get air and cockroaches in the soup. Yours truly. And Tesla. As maybe you can imagine, Edison and he were rivals, but not sworn enemies. Many have characterized Tesla and inventor Thomas Edison as enemies, but Carson says this relationship has been misrepresented. Early in his career, Tesla worked for Edison, designing direct current generators, as you can remember from before, but famously quit to pursue his own project. I mean, knowing about... How Edison treated him, it makes sense that they were enemies. Sure, um, they were on different sides of the so-called current wars, but with Edison pushing for direct current and Tesla for alternating current. Nevertheless, Carson considers them the Steve Jobs and Bill Gates of the time. One, the brilliant marketer and businessman, that's Edison, and the other, a visionary and tech guy. On a rare occasion, Edison attended a conference where Tesla was speaking. Edison, hard of hearing and not wanting to be spot, slipped into the back of the auditorium to listen to the lecture. But Tesla spotted Edison in the crowd, called attention to him, and led the audience in giving him a standing ovation. Schiffer qualifies it more saying the two had a love-hate relationship. And first Edison dismissed Tesla but came to eventually respect him. When there were fires at Tesla laboratory, apparently Edison provided him a lab, so clearly there was some mutual respect after all. It is not only for his invention that he was a visionary, but he actually developed the idea for the smartphone technology we have today in 1901. Tesla may have had a brilliant mind, but he was not as good as reducing his ideas to practice. In their race to develop transatlantic radio, Tesla described to this further and business partner, J.P. Morgan, a new means of instant communication that involved gathering stock quotes and telegram messages. This would be funneled to his laboratory, where he would encode them and assign them each a new frequency. That frequency would be broadcast to a device that would fit in your hands, he explained, in other words, Tesla had envisioned the smartphone and wireless internet, he was the first to be thinking about the information revolution in the sense of delivering information for each individual user. He also conceived of but never developed technology for radar, x-rays, empirical beam and radio astronomy. One famous legend surrounding the eccentric Tesla was that he had an earthquake machine in his Manhattan laboratory that shot his building and nearly brought down the neighborhood during the experiments. Imagine this happens today. It wasn't actually an earthquake machine, but a high-frequency oscillator. A piston set underneath a platform in a laboratory shot violently as it moved, another experiment in more efficient electricity. It didn't bring the block to ruins, but as Carson said, it did shake the quote-unquote Put out of Mark Twain. It seemed that Twain was known for having digestive problems, so Tesla, who knew Twain through their Gentleman's Club, invited him over. He instructed Twain to stand on the platform while he flipped on the oscillator. After about 90 seconds, Twain dropped off the platform and ran to the facilities. (laughs) Tesla was known also for having a very particular sense of style and aesthetics. And pearls drove him crazy. How funny is this? And how rare? I mean, come on. Pearls? He didn't stand the sight of pearls to the extent that he refused to speak to women wearing them. Then, like, when his secretary wore pearls, usually, he sent her home for the day. Like, no one knows why he had such an aversion. But Carson said and believed that in order to be successful, one needed to look successful. He wore white gloves to dinner every night and pride himself of being a taper dresser. Every photograph of Tesla was very carefully constructed to capture his good side. And my last anecdote about him is that he had a photographic memory and a fear of germs. So imagine how Tesla would live today with the pandemic. (laughs) He wouldn't leave home for sure. Tesla had what's known as a photographic memory. He was known to memorize books and images and stockpile visions for inventions in his head. He also had a powerful imagination, as you have previously seen, and the ability to visualize in three dimensions, which he used to control the terrifying vivid nightmares he suffered from as a child. This is in part what makes him such a mystical and eccentric character in popular culture. But this is all for me. I hope you've enjoyed this little recap and anecdotes about Nikola Tesla. I wish that all of you and your loved ones are well, healthy and in these peculiar times. Until next time, from my side.
0: So thank you, Sarah, for introducing us to Nikola Tesla. He was around for half of the 1850s. He was born in 1856, and he died in 1943, January 43. He was 86 years old, so he had a pretty long, full life. And of course, I'm doing a bit of follow-up here on uh, Wikipedia. It says, uh, Tesla experimented with a series of inventions in the 1910s and 20s to varying degrees of success. Having spent most of his money, he lived in a series of New York hotels, leaving behind unpaid bills. He died in in New York in January 1943, and then his work fell into relative obscurity following his death until 1960, when the General Conference on Weights and Measures named the SI Unit of Magnetic Flux Density, the Tesla, in his honor... And then there's been a resurgence in popular interest in Tesla since the 1990s, particularly in the past 15 or so years. Now, a man whose life largely overlaps that of Tesla is Howard Hughes. If, like me, you are a fan of The Simpsons and they have influenced your life, you will know the episode about the casino in Springfield. It was, I looked it up here, it was episode, uh, season 5, episode 10 Springfield, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Legalized Gambling. Now, this was the episode. You know the Simpsons, of course. They draw all these kind of cultural influences, and unless you know the person or you've seen the movie or things like this, you don't know what they're talking about. So I didn't know who Howard Hughes was until I linked the two together. Mr. Burns, more than anything, is influenced by Howard Hughes and Citizen Kane. That's a whole other story. But Howard Hughes, and especially in this episode. So when he talks about the spruce moose, his little toy plane in the, the casino where he's holed up, uh, afraid of germs and the whole thing, this is inspired by the story of Howard Hughes. And Vanessa will talk a little bit about the, the movie, the Hollywood movie that was made in the early 2000s, The Aviator with uh, Leo DiCaprio, which was a great movie and it and it captured really well, I think, the time of uh, Howard Hughes' life there in in like the 20s and 30s. That kind of brought him a bit back into the mainstream, but my sense, I gather, is that if you were alive, basically if you were around in, you know, the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, like Howard Hughes was one of those kind of dominating personalities in especially American cultural life, largely because he was such an enigma, but also because He had so much influence on so many things, on on Hollywood and movies, on the airline industry and flights, on the gambling industry in Las Vegas and all the cultural references that came from that, and a whole host of other things too. So it explains why he would then inevitably filter into something like The Simpsons and other kind of popular culture references, and he was such an enticing mystery to people. Who is this guy? And What's led him to live this, this life of solitude and yet influence? Um, it, uh, there's so much, of course, we can learn about the backstory and you know why he was the way he was. My take on it is that, well, maybe he really wasn't interested in fame and he didn't want the attention and he just kind of wanted to live his life. But he was so famous that he couldn't walk down the street without being recognized. And so his rejection of that was to hold himself up in these casinos in Las Vegas or else in hotels in, like, um, the Bahamas and even in Vancouver. Vanessa will talk about this. But I remember... When I was a tour guide in in Vancouver back in 2009, we would take people, and I would often pick people up, guests, from the Westin Bayshore Hotel, which is right along the waterfront overlooking the Burrard Inlet and Stanley Park, right downtown... And a lot of people would stay there. It was a famous hotel in Vancouver, and part of our whole spiel as a tour guide was that this was the hotel that Howard Hughes lived in off and on for a couple years late in his life in the early 70s. So the guy kind of got around, but, I mean, people didn't really see him coming and going. He, He really kept to himself, and that created this mystique. But this isn't just your average kind of secluded person. This guy had the equivalent, I'm sure, of billions of dollars in today's money, and uh, had tons of influence over a whole number of industries. So Vanessa's is going to tell you all about that. It's a fascinating story, and I'll turn it over to her.
2: Hello, listeners. This is Vanessa. It's nice to be in your ears again I am currently sitting next to an open window because it is beautiful outside, sunny skies, nice breeze, and so you might hear some birds or some flies buzzing around, but maybe it'll make a nice setting for our recording today. (laughs) Okay, so I am going to talk to everybody about Howard Hughes, who is a very fascinating character, so here we go. Buckle your (laughs) seatbelts. Okay, so He is largely known for being one of the wealthiest men and one of the most famous recluses, but he also had many professional accomplishments before withdrawing from public life, and he was born on December 24th, 1905, in Houston, Texas. He was the son of a successful oil drill tool manufacturer, and he inherited the family business in 1923 at the age of 18. And he used some of his fortune to finance films beginning in 1926, which is something that I always remember about him. Um, He produced several movies, including the World War I epic Hell's Angels of 1930, which featured expensive aerial fight sequences, and a then-unknown actress named Jean Harlow. Some of his other significant films were Scarface from 1932 and The Outlaw, 1941. And during his days in Hollywood... He developed a reputation for being a playboy. He dated actresses such as Katherine Hepburn, Ava Gardner, and Ginger Rogers. And in the early 1930s, he developed a passion for flying, and he founded his own aircraft company in the early 1930s. And besides designing and building planes, he risked his own life several times testing planes and setting world airspeed records in the mid to late 1930s. So he's credited with many aviation innovations, such as the first retractable landing gear. And he's also remembered for the H-4 Hercules, which the press nicknamed the Spruce Goose. (laughs) For years, he labored on his massive wooden seaplane, which was intended to transport troops and materials across the Atlantic Ocean during World War II. And it was completed in 1947. It was flown only once, and it never went into production. But he maintained the H-4 in a climate-controlled hangar until his death in 1976. So it's currently housed in the Evergreen Aviation Museum in McMinnville, Oregon. And after a terrible plane crash in 1946, he began to retreat from the world. He bought part of RKO Pictures in 1948, but he actually never visited the studio. In the 1960s, he lived on the top floor of the Desert Inn in Las Vegas, Nevada, and he conducted all of his business from there. Few people ever saw him, which of course led to public speculation and rumors about his activities, naturally. Uh, It was thought that he suffered from obsessive compulsive disorder and had a drug problem. And he actually eventually left Las Vegas and began living abroad. He died on April 5th, 1976. And after his death, numerous fake versions of his will surfaced leading to a battle over his fortune. In 2004, his life returned to the spotlight with the feature film, the aviator, which depicted his early days. Personally, I highly enjoyed that movie. Leonardo DiCaprio played the billionaire as a dashing, troubled young man, and he was nominated for an Academy Award for his portrayal of Hughes. So here's some interesting some interesting tidbits about Howard Hughes. He was a millionaire at age 18. Can you believe that? Uh, the 1901 discovery of oil at Spindletop near Beaumont, Texas, marked the birth of the modern petroleum industry, and Hughes' father, Howard Sr., a Harvard dropout, Went to East Texas to try his luck as a wildcatter, and after becoming frustrated by the difficulty of drilling into hard rock formations with the drills that were standard at the time, he devised a superior two-cone bit, which made drilling easier and revolutionized the oil industry. And then Hughes patented the technology in 1909, and with his partner Walter Sharp formed the Houston-based Sharp Hughes Tool Company to manufacture the bit. Sharp died in 1912, so not much later. And Hughes bought his interest in the company, and when he in turn passed away in 1924, Howard Jr., an only child whose mother had died two years earlier, inherited the thriving company and became a millionaire. So, (laughs) he dropped out of Rice University at 18, let others manage the oil tool business, and set out for Hollywood in 1925. So, another interesting thing, his directorial debut, Hell's Angels, was one of the most expensive movies of his time. Hughes started his music career as a producer on the 1926 film Swell Hogan, which turned out to be so terrible it never made it into theatres. However, he soon had a box office success with 1927's Two Arabian Nights, which earned an Academy Award for Best Comedy Direction. He went on to direct his first film, Hell's Angels, when his initial two directors on the project quit after clashing with Howard Hughes. In his quest to make the aerial scenes in Hell's Angels, an action adventure about World War I pilots, as realistic as possible, Hughes amassed a huge fleet of vintage planes and hired scores of pilots and mechanics. And three pilots died during production, and Hughes himself crashed a plane. That's <laughs> uh, That's terrible. Hell's Angels initially was shot as a silent film, but following the fall 1927 release of The Jazz Singer, the first feature length movie with synchronized dialogue, Hughes decided to reshoot with sound, and he spent nearly $4 million to produce Hell's Angels, which debuted in 1930 and was one of the most expensive films of its time. And it was also a hit, and it put Hughes on the map in Hollywood, so he later produced additional films. But his only other directorial effort was 1943's The Outlaw, a Western featuring Jane Russell. He also set an around-the-world flight record. During the 1930s, Hughes began to seriously pursue his passion for flying, establishing Hughes Aircraft Company in 1932. And it eventually became a major aerospace and defense contractor. And he set a series of aviation records. In 1935, he broke the record for flying a plane over land, traveling 352 miles per hour near Santa Ana, California. Two years later, he set a record for transcontinental U.S. speed, journeying from Burbank, California, to Newark, New Jersey, in 7 hours, 28 minutes, and 25 seconds. I love that they have the seconds in there. On July 10, 1938, Hughes and a four-man crew took off from Brooklyn's Floyd Bennett Field on an around-the-world flight. And after dipping his Lockheed Super Electra's wings over the old Saybrook, Connecticut home of his girlfriend, Catherine Hepburn, he made refueling stops in Paris, Moscow, Omsk, and Yakutsk, both in Siberia, Fairbanks, and Minneapolis before landing back in Brooklyn. There, thousands of spectators greeted Hughes, who had set a new record for circumnavigating the globe with a time of three days, 19 hours, and 17 minutes. He was hailed as a hero and honored with a ticker tape parade in New York City and celebrations around the country. His famous Spruce Goose aircraft was only flown once. So this was the one I talked about earlier. In 1942, during World War II, Hughes contracted with the U.S. government to design and build an aircraft capable of transporting 700 troops or a load of 60 tons across the Atlantic. Known by various names, including the H-4 Hercules, the flying boat, and most commonly the Spruce Goose, which is a moniker Hughes detested, It had a wingspan of 320 feet, and it was the largest aircraft ever constructed. However, the war ended before the plane was completed, and in 1947, Hughes was called to testify before a U.S. Senate committee, investigating whether he'd misused millions of dollars in government funds on the project. At the hearings, Hughes said of the Spruce Goose, this is a quote, I put the sweat of my life into this thing. I have my reputation rolled up in it, and I have stated several times that if it's a failure, I'll probably leave this country and never come back, and I mean it. After testifying in Washington, he was determined to show his massive aircraft could fly, and on November 2nd, 1947, he piloted its first and only flight. The Spruce Goose, nickname, came from the fact that it was constructed of wood due to wartime restrictions on steel and aluminum. However, birch, not spruce, was the primary building material. It traveled for a mile, about 70 feet above the water at Long Beach, California, before landing. So... After the aircraft's lone flight, Hughes shelled out millions to keep it in a climate-controlled Long Beach hangar until his 1976 death, and it's now housed at an aviation museum in Oregon. So, interestingly, Hughes was part of a CIA plot to recover a sunken Soviet submarine. In March 1968, during the Cold War, a Soviet submarine carrying nuclear-armed ballistic missiles accidentally sank in the Pacific Ocean. The Soviets embarked on a two-month search for the sub, but were unable to locate it. And not long afterward, the U.S. found it, some 1,500 miles northwest of Hawaii, 16,500 feet below the water's surface. Believing the 1,750-ton sub was a source of important intelligence information, the CIA launched a complex covert operation codenamed Project Azorian to recover it. The U.S. commissioned the construction of a ship with the specialized capabilities needed to lift the sub from the ocean's depths, and the CIA devised a cover story that the vessel, named the Hughes Glomar Explorer, was being built for Howard Hughes, who planned to use it for a new commercial venture, mining minerals from the ocean floor. The Glomar Explorer finally arrived at the wreckage site in the summer of 1974, but it was unable to retrieve the whole sub, because a portion broke off as it was being raised. A second recovery effort was planned, however. In the meantime, there was a burglary at the Los Angeles headquarters of Hughes Summa Corporation, And among the stolen items was thought to be a secret document linking Howard Hughes to the CIA and the Glomar Explorer. The news media learned about the burglary and the story of the Glomar Explorer's real purpose became public in 1975. And as a result, the mission to recover the rest of the sub was scrapped. All right. When a Vegas hotel tried to kick him out, he bought the place. Faced with a huge tax bill in California, he decided to move to Las Vegas in late 1966, arriving by private train car and taking up residence on the top floor of the Desert Inn. When the hotel's owner tried to evict Hughes and his staff, who didn't gamble, in order to free up rooms for high-roller guests, Hughes decided to buy the place. Technically, he purchased a long-term lease, but it was $13 million. Afterward, he went on a Vegas buying spree, snapping up the other hotel casinos, an airport and airline, and various tracts of undeveloped land. And also, because Hughes was by then a recluse who never left his desert inn penthouse, he wanted to watch his favorite old movies on late-night TV. And the city had no all night stations, so he acquired a local TV station of his own. After four years in Vegas, during which time he became one of Nevada's biggest employers and private landholders, he left abruptly in 1970. And he spent the final six years of his life living in hotels in the Bahamas, Nicaragua, Vancouver, (laughs) which is where I am recording this, London, and Acapulco. And lastly, some fun tidbits a planned Hughes autobiography turned out to be a hoax of all things. In December 1971, McGraw-Hill, a New York City publishing company, announced it would publish Hughes's autobiography, with excerpts slated to appear in Life magazine. Shortly after the announcement, officials at the Hughes Tool Company denounced the planned book as a fake. However, McGraw-Hill and Life denied this charge and expressed confidence in the authenticity of the manuscript, which Hughes supposedly collaborated on with Clifford Irving, who'd previously published works of fiction and nonfiction. McGraw-Hill had handwritten letters said to be from Hughes, along with other project-related items with his signature. These were submitted to a respected handwriting analysis firm, which determined they'd been written by Hughes. And in January 1972, the reclusive mogul, then residing at a hotel in the Bahamas, held a press conference by phone with a group of journalists he'd once known. Hughes, who hadn't spoken with the media in years, said the autobiography was made up, and he'd never met Irving. The press conference generated headlines across the country— And weeks later, Irving, who'd received a $750,000 advance, admitted the manuscript was a fabrication. Wah, wah. He served 17 months in prison for his elaborate scheme, which was the basis for the 2006 movie The Hoax, starring Richard Gere as Irving. Oh, such an interesting guy. So many interesting things that I would love to have more time to pull apart here, but don't have the time to do so. I hope you enjoyed this little glimpse into his life and some of these highlights and thank you so much for listening this is vanessa signing off
0: thank you vanessa so that's howard hughes and you know, part of our goal here in doing these little bios, these historical profiles, is to pique some of your curiosity and your interest to then go and learn even more. We uh, we don't want to go on for a couple hours, of course, about each person. You know, we try to keep it to within about ten or fifteen minutes for each. So there's only so much you can say. But if you do do some research and find out some more interesting tidbits, feel free to share it. You can respond in a comment to the posting of this episode on the Potty Tribe forum and let us know any more facts, any bits of trivia, things that you might learn, or, of course, your own thoughts, you know, maybe something that might touch you or a personal experience or just inspiration, things like that. So it's all about uh, trying to integrate these historical lives into our modern-day community and give us all a little bit of inspiration and enthusiasm even to continue to pursue our ideas. So this is the fun part because I now get to integrate these two historical figures with some current modern-day putty peep. So we're going to start with Meli. She is in Munich, Germany, but her heart is Canadian. That's great. She spent some time in Vancouver. There's another Vancouver connection places she lived, just Munich so far, but uh, she says she's also going to add Vancouver to this list. She is uh, Enneagram type 4, INFP, creative mind, and constantly searching for that elusive thing called purpose. So Mellie is currently enrolled in a psychology course, the uh, ultimate goal being a master's degree in sports psychology, but also learning about UX design and UX research Uh, learning more about mental health and energy healing her digital drawing skills oh and trying to learn a bit of spanish hey me too now you can find her on instagram as well under the profile miss ninja cookie all one word m-i-s-s-n-i-n-j-a-c-o-o-k-i-e miss ninja cookie and that's melly she's our first profile of the week Next, there's Andrew J. Baker, who comes to us from Nottinghamshire in England. Andrew is currently into AI, artificial intelligence, integral theory, spirituality, and of course, formulating the next steps. Places he lived, well, Sheffield, Leeds, uh, Chesterfield, West Yorkshire, Derbyshire, Hastings, East Sussex, Cernster, I think I said that right, and Gloucestershire. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm finding my way around England as I speak here. Now, there's a few things I'd love to ask him about. He talks about transpersonal leadership and being positively disintegrated, neutrally polarized. He talks about the ego death and kundalini awakening. You can find him on Twitter at AJBKR is his profile name. Same thing on LinkedIn, AJBKR. So that's Andrew. He is our second profile. And uh, now we go back to Austria. Well, Austria has been a recurring theme here over the past uh, six weeks or so. Of course, there's Flo, who's from Austria. We talked to him on our last episode. I just reconnected with an old, good old friend of mine I knew years ago who was uh, half-Austrian. He's now back in Austria and just got in touch with me again. There was recently two Austrian Grand Prix in Formula One. <laughs> and we have our party, Peep, Vero Backlightner, who is currently into fuzzy physics, poetry, meditation, and nerding out about many things. Vero is one of those classic kind of left brain, right brain multipotentialites in that she says her mind wraps itself easily around visual things, music, art and design, but she studied physics and math. She has a master's thesis in fuzzy physics, which is a branch of quantum gravity. She says she chose physics because I consider it the most difficult of my interests and the other topics I'm able to learn by myself anyway. Vero plays concert level piano. She does graphic design. She loves typography to draw, to paint, to dance. She did an internship in web design. She's into Chinese arts, things like, well, movement arts, things like Kaigong, Tai Chi, meditation, and Kung Fu. If any of this piques your interest, and I'm sure it does, you can find her on Facebook at Veronica Backleitner, so V-E-R-O-N-I-K-A-B-A-C-H-L-E-I-T-N-E-R, Veronica Backleitner. And I'm sure, without a doubt, it will be an interesting conversation. Okay, and then we have Eliska Mashna, who is in Ostrava in Czech Republic, or Czechia, She's currently into connecting ideas, composing, i.e. music and art, and growing food. I like this. Uh, Elishka is a collector of principles and a connector of ideas. Now, are you ready for the list of some of her interests, passions, and skills? We're talking about oil painting. She attended art school. Acrylics, waters, pastels, cold, and caustic. But then we have drums, flute, trumpet, target archery, bow making, target firearms, gunsmithing, paintball, She did some judo practice, mushroom growing, hydroponics, aeroponics, aquaponics, permaculture, plant caring, living off the grid, renewables, sustainability, small well drilling, earth bag buildings. Huh. I like to ask her about that. House reconstruction, beekeeping, distilling, solar heat, wind energy, electrical engineering, metalworking. So I can see a theme of kind of off the grid, self-sufficient, sustainable type living, which is very inspiring to me, and I think a lot of us. So if you're interested in any of those themes, feel free to contact Elishka. She's also a member of the Photographers and the Music Makers group. Well, I've been collecting a few people here. I may have missed a couple. Joel, if you're listening, you'll have to let me know. (laughs) I think I may have missed one or two people. But, uh, you know, we we love learning about our Putty Tribe members, our multi-potentialites. And I, I think the sense of this show as we're moving forward is to kind of blend some of that historical perspective in with the present day, our current members, and again, really connect that inspiration from the, the trailblazers, right? The people who have uh, carved their way and into the popular culture and influence and to see who might be following in their steps in the current day. Now, I don't want to put any undue pressure, of course, on anyone, including myself, because I know how that feels. I'm just trying to live, you know, day to day and uh, raise my kids and keep a roof over our heads and try to pursue my interests, my passions, find my way through life. It's a lot to think about, you know, doing or becoming more than that. So we take it, uh, I think most of us at least, we take it uh, a step at a time. But, um, hey, you never know when opportunities might arise and when our creativity could open up doors. And if any of that happens for any of you, please share your story. Come on our show and let us know what it's like, how one step has led to another. We're, We're always fascinated to hear about people's stories, their journey, and their progression. It's exciting and it's a big part of why this show is here. Well, we'll leave it at that. It's been a fun show. It's been something different. We're going to keep pursuing this kind of track and try to blend, of course. We're, we're still going to talk to lots of our party people. We're going to do some conversations and get to know people in person. But uh, try to branch out and give ourselves a, a little more broader scope here as well. This is a podcast where anything's possible, all ideas, all kinds of creativity is there. And we're going to see what uh, we can do with it. So thanks very much, as always, for listening. Once again, we hope you're having a great summer. We hope you're staying healthy. And uh, stay tuned in your podcast feed. Feel free to subscribe if you're on iTunes or any other podcast app. You can easily subscribe to this podcast. It'll upload and update automatically once we add our new episodes. Uh, you can give us a review. We don't talk about that much, but it is a helpful thing, you know, for people to find the show and uh, give it a bit of a boost. If you, Especially if you're on iTunes, you can go over to the uh, review uh, tab and give us a, a review if you're interested. I would say, though, that's a helpful thing, but mostly on the Putty Tribe Forum. If you have a couple seconds, leave us a comment. Say if you like the episode, some ideas, some suggestions, any kind of feedback. That's where we really engage our community is on the Putty Tribe Forum. So if you're listening and you have some thoughts, any ideas in mind, head over there and tell us what you think. You can always get in touch. So thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you again on our next episode. Thanks, everybody.